So we're continuing our series in Galatians, chapter 3, <clears throat> verses 1 through to verse number 5, and I do ask that you would uh, bear with me as we go through this passage. I had uh, wrestled with certain things in this passage that we're looking at today, and so as I seek to lead you through some of the things that I was seeing or some of the ways in which this passage could be looked at. Um, just be sensitive to what the Lord is teaching you and you know how uh, this would apply to you. But I, I, do, I do want you to uh, look with me and, and look at verses 1 through to verse number 5. I think this is a very important scriptures. <clears throat> Galatians 3 verses 1 through to verse number 5. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you, that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh. Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit, and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? <clears throat> there are a lot of questions in these five verses. And sometimes questions beget questions. <laughs> and I felt that way when I was studying this passage. And so it's not a bad thing if we have questions concerning the Scripture. I believe it shows us how exalted God's Word is. And uh, we are humbled uh, by the magnitude of the Word of God. And so if this sermon leaves you with some questions, that's kind of good. As long as you get the main point here and take away some things that are very clear things that aren't so clear, then you can study the Word of God and search the Scriptures, uh, as we are all commanded to do. Uh, but I want to consider uh, the topic, or I believe this portion of Scripture, is mainly trying to deal with something called experimental uh, Christianity, or experiential, should I say, not experimental, experiential Christianity. And uh, Christianity is something not only to be known, to be believed, but also to be experienced. That's a very important thing uh, that lacks in our day. Now, if we look at the context of what we've been considering over the last few months, uh, in Galatians chapter number 2, the Apostle Paul has just finished, in verses 14 to 21, recounting how he confronted Peter there at Antioch because of his hypocrisy, and he teaches the Galatians indirectly, without directly addressing them, indirectly by this account of Peter's failure to show them that salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ and not by the works of the law. That teaching becomes so clear from verses 14 through to verse number 21. And although he's not saying to the Galatians directly, saying Galatians, see this, this, this and that, he's showing them a perfect example and picture and, uh, and uh, should I say something that happens in his confrontation with Peter to prove to them uh, that it's foolish to go down that road of uh, 
turning away from faith and, and trying to include the works of the law in justification or, or in sanctification uh, for that matter either. So he also teaches them about the union that they have with Christ and how salvation is by faith alone in him. And so he teaches this doctrine very clearly in an indirect way in Galatians chapter 2. And now when we come to Galatians chapter 3, he addresses the Galatians very directly. Oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you and you and you and you should so on and so forth? Have you, have you Galatians experienced this, seen that, done this? And so it's important to realize that he's transitioning from this indirect teaching, teaching them that salvation is by faith alone very clearly and not by the works of the law. But now he turns to them directly and says, now, hang on, I want to ask you a series of questions to make you think about the preeminence of faith over the works of the law, to make you think really about the power of faith uh, in your life as a result to the works of the law. Now, most people in the early church came out of Judaism. When Paul went to any uh, place to preach, even in the Gentile world, he would first go to the synagogues and he would go into the synagogues and he would preach the gospel to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So most of the early church was made up of Jewish converts in the early days. Until about 70 AD, history tells us that uh, the Jews uh, despised uh, the Christians very much so uh, because those Christian Jews, when Titus came in and destroyed the temple, those Christian Jews were obeying the words of Jesus and fleeing to the mountains and not coming and helping their family as the temple was being torn down and not siding with Judaism. They were fleeing and not fighting. And that's because they were Christians and not Jews. Uh, but in saying that, Judaism turned hostile like never before against the Christian church. And then we start to see really the church becoming predominantly Gentile after 70 AD. But before that, it was predominantly Jewish. And so it being predominantly Jewish, there was a strong temptation for the Jews to revert back to the law, to back to their teaching that they've been brought up with as children. And so he teaches them very clearly, uh, you know, and, and challenges them and says, when you were under the law, were you benefited by these things? Did you receive the spirit under the law or did you receive it under grace and by faith? And so he's asking a series of questions to challenge their thinking and help them to see. Now, he makes a powerful appeal in verses 1 to 5 to their experience, to their experience. Look at the questions he's asking. Did you receive? That's an experience. He's not saying, did you know? He's not saying, what do you believe about such and such? He's saying, what about your experience? When you received the Spirit of God, did you receive it by the works of the law, by the hearing of faith? And so and it goes on to give more experience, especially in verse number five, uh, to them to help them examine whether or not uh, this doctrine of the works of the law is really the right path or is it actually a detour or a uh, turning away uh, from the Lord. So he's trying to help them think about that. And so the word spirit appears in five verses here three times. And so uh, he's showing here that the new covenant is a covenant that is dominated and governed by the spirit, not by the law. And the spirit responds to faith, not to the law. Okay. And this is what he's showing these believers here. 
And so he contrasts the hearing of the, uh, the hearing of faith and the works of the law, the hearing of faith and the works of the law. And so what's Paul's purpose? If we understand Paul's purpose, will help us. Paul's purpose is to teach these believers that faith in Jesus Christ is so much more preeminent than the works of the law. And he appeals to their experience to help them recognize that what has taken place in their life is not because they remained under the law, but because they received God's word by faith and therefore their lives had these dramatic experiences. And this is important to know. And so let's talk a little bit about, or I want to address a little bit first about experiential religion. Okay, now we talk about the Bible, when we read it, we say it's a living word, right? This is the living word. We serve the living God. We talk about a living relationship with the Lord. Uh, We talk about living not because, we're not talking about it's living because it's loud or because it's in your face. That's not what it means by living. We know that the truth of God is living because it actually has effect and it's effectual in the life. And so this is why it's living. The, our religion is alive. It's not dead. It's living. And part of Christianity's authenticity, the fact that we know Christianity is true, is not because it's only doctrinally sound, but because the doctrines that it teach actually take effect in the life. Now imagine for a moment that the apostles were preaching salvation by faith alone in Jesus Christ and not one person under their ministry was affected by that message throughout all of church history. I would ask you, would this doctrine have any authenticity? No, we would question the genuineness of it. If, if salvation is meant to change a man, it's meant to uh, uh, make a man new, if it's meant to bring him into a living relationship with God and everyone that apparently gets saved has no relationship with God and no living life and no power and no, uh, you know, no um, reality of Christ and a relationship, then we have to ask ourselves, is this a hoax or is it real? And so we can't dismiss experience from doctrine. In fact, we need to experience the doctrine. That's exactly what we need to be doing, experiencing the doctrine. It's not good enough to know the gospel. You need to experience the truth of the gospel so that you might be saved. And this is very important. That's why the man that sowed the, the seed amongst the good ground, it was one that heareth it and understandeth it. And guess what happens? It bore fruit in his life. It was effectual. And so the effectual nature of the gospel shows that this heart really received the message of the true gospel, right? Because doctrine must be coupled with experience. Okay, this is very important truth. Uh, But Satan also has his uh, living religions, if I could say. Now, there are many experiences that are not of God that are in satanic religions like Hinduism and Buddhism. Many of them experience uh, great emotional heights and, 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 and strange feelings and, and, and things that, that, that are supernatural. Okay, but we know that the devil also has counterfeit. Remember what he says in, in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, if you receive another uh, spirit, another gospel, another gospel, another spirit, another Jesus. And so there's another spirit. There is another gospel. There is another Jesus. And they counterfeit in the last days. Don't forget that the Antichrist will do signs and mighty wonders that if it were possible, he would even deceive the very elect. So we must not think that just because there's activity or some supernatural activity in a place that that means that God is definitely in that place. This is why we must couple experience with doctrine. You understand that? 
You, you have extreme-isms in, in, in the world today. It's extreme Pentecostalism, which uh, clearly shows in the Word of Faith movement, it's experience without doctrine. God never leads a man to bark like a dog. There's no such thing as a Toronto blessing. Do you understand that? These are unbiblical, ungodly things. Uh, but we have the other extreme, that if anything happens that is out of the ordinary, it's of the devil. <laughs> it's of the devil. If anything gives us a bit of a shaking, it can't be of God. Uh, if someone starts weeping uh, uncontrollably over the sense of their sin uh, and over the sense of the, um, of the holiness of God, we think, oh, this is just emotionalism. It's hype. Well, we must be careful that we don't also uh, belittle experiences. And so we must understand that Christianity is an experiential religion. It is an experiential um, truth. And so it's important. And so we must care, be careful about this reaction. I'll, I'll give a few examples of something, things that I've heard over my uh, times in, in seeing these things. You, you often hear uh, people speak about love as being an action. Have you heard that before? Love is not a feeling, it's an action. That's actually a false statement. You say, why? Why is it false? Well, we could, because action is the expression of love. Love exists before there's the action. Okay, the action comes out because there's love. Listen, for God so loved the world. He loved the world before he made the world that he gave his only begotten son to the world. So we are not to think that, that, that the love was only there when he gave. The love existed before he gave. The expression of his love is, was that he gave. And so sometimes we're thinking, ah, there's no, you know, love is an action. No, we can test love by actions, no doubt. But we must be careful when we're testing things not to react to change the definition of love. Do you understand that? Joy is a feeling. We feel joy. You can't describe it in any other way. And you can know things by feeling. There's no problem with that. Okay, if I tell you what's the temperature, is it hot or cold? I'm asking you not what the weatherman said. I'm asking you how do you feel? And by your feeling, you'll determine whether it's hot or cold. Now, that is the exact temperature. You might go and get the actual facts. But the reality is that, that there is ways in which we can know things by the medium of feeling. And so we must not reject uh, feelings. We must not reject affections or emotions. They are part of God's plan for his people that we might enjoy all that God has for us, even in the emotional realm. Okay, and so this is important. The affections are important. And so uh, this plays out into the doctrine of the Holy Spirit uh, very, very much so. And I believe it grieves the Spirit and quenches the Holy Spirit in his church today because there are certain people that replace the Spirit with the word and instead of it being the father son and the holy ghost it's the father son and the word of god okay and, I, and you say that sounds ridiculous well they might not say it that way but it comes across that way and you say well what do you mean well i've heard people say to me that being filled with the spirit just simply means being filled with the word of god so that's it so because i memorized scriptures as a child i'm filled with the spirit is that what it's meant to mean Okay, this is, this is what, what's happening is because of the fears collected with the filling of the Spirit uh, and the reactions to those truths, they simply go as far as to say that the Spirit is the Word and the Word is the Spirit. Uh, you know, and they would say uh, things like, like this. If you've heard, um, you know, to be filled with the Spirit, to be filled with the Word. And also to pray in the Spirit just simply means to pray to the, according to the Word of God. Well, that's not exactly what, when, 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 when John was praying in the Spirit in the Lord's Day, and was in the Spirit in the Lord's Day, it wasn't because he was praying the Word of God and reading the Scripture and praying the Word of God. That's not what it means to pray in the Holy Ghost. 
And so we've got to be careful in reactions not to reduce God's truth to a level of our understanding or a level of our experience, but understand that the scriptural experience, we want to be our experience, so we approach the scriptures uh, with a sense of humility and humbleness saying, God, I want all that you have for me, whether I've tasted of it or not. I want to adjust myself to your word. And so there's a, there's a balance and a danger on either side uh, of this thing. And so we must be careful of that reaction. That reaction creates what we call dead orthodoxy. You can go into many churches today and they will give you their doctrinal statement, speak and spam. But it's dead orthodoxy. It's truth. Yes, it's dead truth, not alive. It's a dead worship dead service, dead preaching. There's no life in it. There's no sense in which a man goes in there and in the inner soul of a man, his life is changed. George Whitfield was saved by reading a book, The Life of God in the Soul of Man. And he was a man that was in a holy club, so active in his service toward God and so diligent in his service toward God and praying and seeking God and doing these things. But there was no life in the soul, life of God in his soul. When he read this book, he was convicted. He turned to the Lord. And guess what? He had the life of God in his soul that day. And George Whitfield's life became a living testimony of a man empowered by the Holy Ghost. There's no question about that. And so simply what I'm saying uh, to you today is that Christianity is something to be experienced and is not just something to be believed. <clears throat> and so we must be careful not to fight against and uh, fight for a non-experiential Christianity. And we must settle for a Christianity that experiences the doctrine. And so let's look at this passage as we do that. And I think this is very important for our understanding as we approach this because Paul is addressing their experience. Look what he says in verse uh, number one. He says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you, that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. Paul begins to first help them see their folly. He gives a very sharp rebuke, O foolish Galatians, you fools. Uh, you, uh, you, you fools, you, you people that have no sense, as it were, you unintelligent fools. That's a strong language. Now, they weren't unintelligent fools because they didn't know some things, but they were unintelligent fools because they were straying for some things that they already knew. You understand that? They had the truth of God. They knew the truth of God. The truth of God was preached to them. They, they experienced the truth of God. And now they were moving from the truth of God back to the law. And he was saying, oh, foolish Galatians, what's wrong with you? Wake up. You're being, you have no sense. No sense. And he says to them uh, in this passage of scripture, he says, who hath bewitched you? Who hath cast a spell upon you? Now, I don't really believe that there was actually a demonic spell cast upon them. But what I actually do believe is that the false teachers were so effectual in their false teaching and their deception that it was almost as if they had by a spell drew them away from the truth. It was like they were just dazed out following this thing, not thinking it through. False teachers came in and said, yes, be saved by faith, but circumcised to also be saved. And they just were carried away with this wind of doctrine as if they'd been bewitched, fascinated, taken away. And he's saying, oh, foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? You were here at one point and now you're over here. What happened? Who uh, allured you away? You've just been carried away. What happened to you? 
And what's even sadder is it's not that they didn't have a clear gospel presentation given to them. <laughs> Look what he says. He says, that, Who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth crucified among you? He's saying, he's saying here that, that, that who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, no longer continue in obedience to the truth that you were once persuaded of. The word uh, um, obey has the same idea of persuasion and faith. And the idea is he's saying here, who has been these people that have, that have so uh, persuaded you, you were so, uh, you're not continuing in obedience to this truth that you were once persuaded of, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, what's happened to you? He says to them in verse in the same verse, he says, who before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth crucified among you. That word evidently set forth is the same Greek word, which means to what would we, in a modern way that we'd look at it today has been placarded, placarded like a billboard. Now, no one misses a billboard, right? It's there for the purpose to be clearly seen. And in those days, if someone was selling a house, they might put a sign at the front or if there was a big public notice put on by the Romans. It'd be up there on a building for everyone to see. And it was this same word used of this. And what he's saying is Paul saying this. When I came and preached to you, the gospel came so clearly in the demonstration of the spirit of power, the work of the spirit of God. Your eyes were so enlightened. You saw this. You tasted this. You knew this. It was placarded right before your very eyes. How can you miss this? He says, you have no excuse as to the truth delivered unto you. You've been bewitched. You've been deceived, you foolish Galatians. And he says to them, what's happened to you? Now, <clears throat> I think something that we can learn from this first and foremost is this. For we who know the gospel of Jesus Christ very well and very clearly, we must make it a diligent effort of ours not only to be satisfied with the knowledge that we know of it, but to plunge the depths of it. And I believe many Christian children grow up in homes learning the gospel, can recite the gospel, quote the scriptures, but they don't understand the beauties and the concepts of the gospel. You can ask them, what does justification mean? They won't be able to describe it to you and understand the, the wonders of it, the beauty of it. What does regeneration mean? It's, it's almost nonsensical to them. They don't get it. They don't comprehend it. All they know is the word saved. I'm saved. When did you get saved? 1999, da-da-da, this date, you know, that's, that's it. What does that mean? What does that look like? What does God say happens to us at salvation? Can you tell me more about this? What does the cross mean to you? Who does Jesus mean to you? What does the blood mean? What does the blood of Christ speak to us? What does it speak to you about? What is, what is this idea of that we've been washed and regenerated and the Spirit of God now indwells in us? Explain to me what the new covenant is all about. Explain to me what all these things related to the gospel are about. Can you begin to explain that? If I was to ask you today to write on a piece of paper and to hand it in by the end of today as to everything that the gospel of Jesus Christ means to you as a believer I wonder how many of us could write on that the truth is many of us will perhaps struggle to even write half a page of what the beauties and the depths and the glories of the cross of Jesus Christ means to us and no wonder many of God's people are easily distracted and, and bewitched by false teaching because they're not grounded and rooted in the doctrines of Christ and it's a shame to the church of Jesus Christ today. That the only one doctrine that is so important that men and women had died for throughout the histories, most Christians today can only give you a very anemic skeleton as to what it actually is. 
And that speaks to the low state of our level of the knowledge of God's truth and his word in the Christian church today. No wonder why we don't have a great appreciation for the gospel. And no wonder why people stray so easily from the gospel. And I think we've got to get back to the gospel in a very real and living way and teach people these blessed truths of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, the union, that's part of the gospel and all the other aspects that are connected with the gospel. Now, going on from this, we see in verse number two, he directly now saying, you knowing all these things, you knowing the gospel very clearly and having no excuse as to the truth delivered unto you, let me ask you a series of questions. To examine your experience, to really challenge you and draw you back to that beautiful gospel and all that it's done for you. He's appealing to their conscience. This is what questions do. They appeal to the conscience. And look what he says here in verse number two. He says, this only would I learn of you. Receive ye the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Now, before we look at this, the idea of receive ye the spirit, I do want to first bring out this first part. This only would I learn of you. Now, that's a big statement. Paul saying, there's only one thing I want to know. Answer me this. It's almost like he sat them down and goes, I taught you the doctrine of justification. You're fools for moving away from this doctrine. And he's sitting down and says, I just want to ask you one question. If you can answer me this question in all honesty, and you can examine yourself in all honesty and, and look at this question thoroughly enough, it should satisfy me and even yourselves as to the wonder and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and faith over the works of the law. He says, answer me this. When you received the Spirit, did you receive the Holy Ghost as a result of you obeying the law of Moses or by your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Was it the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Was it because you heard the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you had received the Holy Ghost? Was it because of that? Or was it when you were still under the law? Is that why you received the Holy Ghost? And so what he seems to be saying is when I came and preached to you the gospel and you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and you believed on Jesus and forsook the law, wasn't this, wasn't it that you had received the Spirit of God after that this had happened in your life? After that, ye believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Wasn't it then? Answer me this. And so it's a big challenge that he's asking them, but he, he poses the, uh, the difficulty that is connected uh, with this statement. And this is something that, that I, had, I was wrestling with in relationship to uh, what is being referred to when he says, received ye the Spirit. Now, there's two main views concerning this passage of Scripture. Either received ye the Spirit is referring to the indwelling Holy Spirit given to people at the moment of their faith in Jesus Christ, or it is referring to the filling of the Spirit, which is a subsequent experience that happens after a person believes on Jesus Christ. And this is where the tension lies. And I'll, give you, I'll show you as to why the tension lies there. Firstly, in favor of the indwelling spirit is simply this. He's saying in the context of justification, salvation, he's talking about when you receive the Holy Spirit. 
Now, we all know that if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. We all know that the new covenant is that God will put his spirit within you. And the blood of the new covenant is the blood of Jesus Christ. And as a man believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, he has the spirit of God in dwelling him. We all know that the Bible teaches us in 1 John that he has given unto us his spirit. And so there's no question as to the doctrine of the indwelling spirit of God at the point of conversion. And because this uh, chapter and this connection is in relation to salvation, it is very uh, often believed that this is referring to the fact that they had received the indwelling spirit upon their conversion. Okay, and that is um, one of the views as to what it's referring to. Now, <clears throat> also in, in, in favor of this view is that um, they had received the Holy Ghost at their conversion and they were regenerated. Now, one of the next view is the filling of the Spirit. Okay, and why some people believe that this is referring to the filling of the Spirit, which happens subsequent to conversion, is firstly because it is an indisputable reality that when a man or woman is filled with the Holy Spirit, there is no question as to his experience of receiving the Spirit. It's very evidently clear, not only to himself, but even to others. At the time of regeneration, uh, we could say that maybe the day the person gets saved, he doesn't actually know that he's received the Spirit. At the day of his salvation, he is regenerated. And yes, there's changes and the sanctification taking place, but it may not be to a discipleship lesson later on that he actually realizes that the Spirit of God indwells him or maybe, maybe sometime later. And so whether or not Paul's actually saying here uh, that this is referring to that definite experience at conversion that they should all clearly know about or whether he's referring to the feeling as a definite experience which everyone should know about when they're filled is why this issue is raised. Okay, and so... Some believe it's referring to also the filling of the Spirit, and that's because <clears throat> it's an experience of God's presence and power of the Holy Ghost, which is indisputable and unquestionable. Now, um, <clears throat> this also, another issue as well, the word receive ye the Spirit in the Scripture is, as, as far as I have studied it out and know, is more in relationship, given the words receive and the Holy Spirit, is more in relationship to the filling and not in relationship to the indwelling. And so therefore, it's more, uh, I guess, if you want to interpret this passage in light of other passages, it's more that word receive, the spirit is more in connection and has more scriptural backing to say that it's referring to the filling and not to the indwelling. And so this is why there's also a bit of tension uh, in understanding this passage. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 19, all show that these were believers that received the Holy Spirit after their conversion. Not that they didn't have the indwelling spirit before, but that receiving also is synonymous with that idea of filling. Okay, And this is where the whole tension lies uh, within this passage of Scripture. And I really believe it's a genuine tension and a difficult tension. But um, I'm not going to um, <clears throat> focus on that. I, I, I would prefer to look at it today in relationship to the indwelling, okay, to the indwelling. And the, my reason for that is verse number three says, having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect through the flesh? And so I'm thinking here in relation to verse two is salvation. Verse three is referring to their sanctification. And verse five, I believe, is referring to the filling, which we will look at, uh, at moments, uh, moments on. But th the point is, this is the difficulty I want you to know. Uh, I want to be honest with you as I have faced that difficulty myself. But also in saying that, I want to say this. Cornelius was a man 
that was both indwelt by the Spirit and filled with the Spirit at the same time. Okay, And so many people in the early church, upon hearing the gospel, says of Cornelius, that the Holy Ghost fell on him. And it says, Peter said, can any man forbid water which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? Now, they received it in power on the day of Pentecost. And he received it also uh, in that sense as well. But also we know he was indwelt that day. And so I can understand that this can happen together. And so let's just... For the sake of, of our understanding of this passage, I believe it's best we stick with the idea of indwelling as we look at verse number two. And verse number two says, This only would I learn of you. I want to know this one thing of you. Did you receive the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit of God, because you were under the works of the law, or did you receive the indwelling Spirit of God um, by the fact that you had heard the gospel message and received it by faith? And so what he's saying to them is, were you regenerated? Were you um, uh, saved? Were you uh, basically entered into that new covenant? Did you uh, experience this joy and peace that came from a new relationship with Jesus Christ? Did you experience that union uh, with the Holy Spirit and with the Lord Jesus Christ simply because you can remain under the law? Or was it because you forsook the law and came to faith in Jesus Christ? What was it? Now, the obvious answer is, obviously, it was by faith. Obviously, these believers were now regenerated and were born again and had a new life in Christ, not because they were under the law. The Bible says that the letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. You see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It contrasts the old covenant with the new covenant. And what it's simply saying is this, that, that, that when you received the Holy Ghost, it wasn't because you were still following the law of Moses. It's because you repented from Moses. You repented from your sin and you turned to Jesus Christ as your only hope and the the spirit of the living God came into your heart, that spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, and you were made part of the family of God. And he's saying to them, remember now to that experience when you received the spirit of God. And let me ask you this. Did you receive it because you remain under the law or because you came by grace? Now, that's an important question to ask. I want to ask you, when did you receive the Holy Ghost? Can you remember a time in your life where you came to the point in your life where you evidently understood that there is another person that lives inside of me. I will put my spirit within you. The Bible teaches that God is a trinity. He's Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Listen, three persons. The Holy Spirit is a person. He speaks. He moves, he has a mind, he has a will, he has an emotion. Let me ask you this. Do you know that the Spirit of God dwells in you? This same question Paul challenged the Corinthians with. Now that's a challenging question because I believe that there are many Christians here today that probably cannot really testify of the fact that God's Spirit dwells within them. Oh, maybe, maybe because the Bible says so. Hang on. We looked at a doctrine, right? But shouldn't we experience the doctrine? Are you telling me that the living God of heaven and earth indwells the believer and the believer in all his Christian life doesn't know this? Now, that's a very shallow faith. That's a very shallow faith. That's a shaky faith. I'm not saying that that person is not saved because he doesn't know that. You know, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're a child of God. And sometimes that comes a bit later on in someone's Christian life and experience. 
And I believe it's a lack of teaching on this doctrine that causes a lot of God's people not to acknowledge this reality of the Spirit of God indwelling them. But let me ask you this. Can you say that I have been regenerated by the Holy Ghost and that He leads me, guides me, speaks to me, opens my eyes, helps me to see, and He is there with me? Can you say that in all honesty? I call to you today and ask you, have you experienced the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit? I really believe a lot of young people in our churches today simply give up on Christianity because all they see it is a bunch of do's and don'ts and do not understand the life-giving power of the Holy Ghost that sanctifies the life and gives joy and peace to the soul of God's people. And I believe many of us struggle in our walk with God and our love for Jesus Christ and, and the joy that should accompany our salvation simply because we do not honor and give respect and do not give glory and honor to the blessed person of the Holy Spirit that indwells us, but we do not acknowledge him in any way, shape or form. We think God saved us and now it's all us and God hasn't given us his spirit. The whole new covenant is a covenant of the spirit. It is not a covenant of works, it's a covenant of grace. And it's a covenant that teaches us that God is saying that the people under the old covenant could not live to the glory of God. So God says to them, I'm going to write those laws upon your heart and I'm going to do it by giving you the Spirit of God. But most Christians fail to understand His power, His working and His life within their soul. I want to ask you today, do you have the life of God in your soul? When was the last time that you could say to yourself honestly before God that Christ liveth in me? That is an important question. He's actually appealing to the Galatians of something that they should all know. He's not saying to them something that they wouldn't know, right? Received you the Spirit. He's saying, listen, I'm actually saying, I just want to know this one thing. You can answer me this, it will prove my case that justification is by faith and that faith alone is preeminent to the works of the law. And so, the challenge goes out to us the same way. But look what he says in verse number three. Uh, yeah, verse number three. Are ye so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Now, if verse number two is a reference to salvation, what we have here in verse number three is a reference to sanctification. You say, why do you say this? Because it says, if you have begun in the spirit, you have begun your Christian life by receiving the Holy Ghost and having begun your Christian life by receiving the Holy Ghost, he says this, do you really think that you are going to perfect and complete your Christian experience by the works of the law, or by your own flesh, or by your own strength? The answer is, you're foolish if you think that. If you came out of the law, only to go back under the law, and to have a little experience of the grace of God in between, he says, you're a fool. The way you began is the way you continue. God doesn't just give the Spirit just that conversion to regenerate and leaves you alone. That same Spirit is to guide us and lead us and sanctify us until the day we see Christ. 
And he's saying, are you so foolish having begun in the spirit? Do you really think that you can go back to the works of the law and perfect what's lacking because God's spirit couldn't do a good enough job in your life? That's what he's saying. And listen, when a Christian gets saved and realizes the joy of knowing Christ and his heart is filled with love toward Jesus and he follows Jesus and he'll do anything for Jesus and he'll serve Jesus and he want to be with God's people and he want to worship God and praise Jesus and honor Jesus. And then all of a sudden, somewhere along the line, he doesn't have the same view of Jesus that he once had. And he starts to find that I'm doing all the same things, but it doesn't seem to have the same life. Starting to feel a bit dead in my prayer life, a little bit dead in my witness, a little bit dry in my Bible reading, a little bit cold in my relationship and my love towards my brethren. And, and, and so he says, well, what's happened? I'll tell you what's happened. Having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Do you really think that you can do what only the Spirit of God can do in you? Do you really think that God needs you to finish off the job, so to speak? You want to complete what God started because God can only start it, but He needs us to finish it. He's saying, don't you realize that that is so foolish? Now, now the, the, the truth is, brethren, that many of God's people, we get to a state and condition in our Christian life where we become very dry, cold and anemic and we wonder and question as to what's happening in our life. I'll tell you what's happening in your life. It's very likely that we've begun in a spirit and somewhere along the line we said, Holy Spirit, thank you for your work, but I can take care of this now. You know, when we first read our Bibles, we'd read and say, God, show me thy truth. Like the hymn writer said, Now send thy spirit, Lord, unto me, that he might touch my eyes and make me see. Show me the truth concealed within thy word, and in thy book revealed I see the Lord. He's realizing that I can only see that which the Spirit of God shows me. And there's a dependence, and there's a trust, and there is a leaning upon the Spirit of God, not only that saved him, but to show him, to help him grow. And so when a man first gets saved, he's looking unto Jesus, his faith is in the Lord, and the Spirit of God opens his eyes, he sees. And he rejoices. Wow, amazing. What a saviour. And somewhere along the line, he knows the saviour hasn't changed, but it seems to have changed in his mind. And then he starts to get, listen, mechanical. Now, I want to make a point here because we've got to be careful lest we don't go extreme on this the idea of mechanic. The, the, the Christian life requires being methodical but not mechanical. You understand that? John Wesley was a man of God who knew the Lord very personally, and he was a man that was very methodical. In fact, any great man of God was methodical. What do you mean by that? Well, he was disciplined. He arose at certain times to meet the Lord. He ordered his day so that he might come before the Word of God, whether he felt like it or did not feel like it. Or I'm not trying to say here, only read your Bible when you feel like it. You'll never read your Bible if you only read it when you feel like it. This is not what the Scripture is saying. What it's simply saying is you discipline yourself to the, come to the place of reading your Bible and before you read your Bible, your eyes look up and your heart bows and says, God, I don't want to read my Bible, but can you help me? That's the difference between this, this being you know, mechanical is not saying God, right? 
and you might have discipline and still be mechanical because it's not about your heart anymore. It's about the fact that you just tick the boxes. I was in church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday, Friday. The box has been ticked. I've done my Bible reading planner. I have simply come to the place where I have done my 15, 20 minute session of prayer. I have gone through the list of people that are on my prayer list. Not that any of these things are wrong. Do you understand what I'm saying? We should do all these things. It's good. Prayer list to aid us in prayer. No problem. I've done all these things and I've done my soul winning for the week. I've ticked all my boxes. <sighs> good. Done. Mechanical. Dry. Cold. Dead. Lifeless thinking that I'm perfecting my Christian life because of all that I am doing, not realizing that you had once begun in the spirit and all that had life in it. And now it feels like it's all dry and dead and cold. There's a difference between being methodical and mechanical. Do not be mechanical. Be methodical. And be disciplined to humble yourself in the sight of the Lord knowing that he will lift you up. Don't think that the Christian life can be managed in your own power and your own strength. And don't go on leaving the spirit of God behind you because you will soon find that the Christian life cannot be lived apart from him. And you will soon have a distaste for God's people. You will no longer say with the psalmist, I rejoice when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. They'll be like, oh man, it's time to go to church. But if I don't go, so-and-so is going to ask me where was I and maybe they're going to think I'm not spiritual. i just got to go. What brings a man to that place? What brings a woman to that place? I'll tell you what brings him to that place. Mechanicalism. Not realizing the heart and meaning behind all that God has given us to do and not bringing our heart into God's purposes, not bringing ourselves down to God's purposes and looking up and depending on him for grace. And that's why we are stagnated in our sanctification, because we somehow think that we can do it ourselves. Some of us need to just stop. And come before the Lord and say, Lord, I have been no better than a Pharisee. God, unless you stir my heart with life anew, I can't do this anymore. Where is this love, joy, peace with God? I tell you where it comes from, the indwelling presence of Jesus. And listen, this is what God has for his people. I'm not, I'm not offering you something that's impossible. I'm, I'm offering something that's normal. That's meant to be. This is God's grace to us. He didn't give us the spirit to make it hard. He gave us the spirit to make it easy, to make it living, to make it joyful, to make it great. But somehow the flesh always resolves back to doing it in its own strength because somehow subtly and very uh, wisely and shrewdly it likes to take some glory and pleasure in what it does as opposed to humbling itself and saying, God, I can't. I can't. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It's God that works in you, brethren. It's God that works in you. Now I want you to see <clears throat> in verse number four. By the way, before we go there, I want to make one more point on this issue. The difference between being methodical and mechanical and having life and not having life 
is the Spirit of God. That's why He's given the Spirit. And that's why you and I need to honor, acknowledge the presence of the Holy Ghost in our lives. We must do this. We must. God is a triune God. Don't leave one of the persons of the Godhead out. In fact, this whole new covenant is His dispensation. We're in the dispensation of the Spirit, brethren. In fact, this whole Christian life is meant to be lived in His power, in His love, in His joy. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Yeah, all of it. Walk in the Spirit. Read the epistles. Read the book of Acts. It's all about the Holy Ghost and how He is meant to guide the believer. So we can't do this apart from Him. But you say, how do I know that I'm mechanical? Not only just by ticking the boxes. Listen, I ask you this. You say, maybe I, you feel like, no, I'm not really mechanical. I ask you this. How is your worship? How do you worship God? When you worship God, is your heart raised with a sense of awe and the beauty and the grace of God. Now that might be in different measures. The way I may explain it may not be the exact same way you experience it. I'm just simply saying to you, in you, when you worship God, do you actually feel that your heart is engaged in worship and communion with God? Do you feel having fellowship with God? Or is it dry and cold just reading the words and singing the words on the hymn on the page? That's how you know, that's how you can gauge practically how or not, whether or not the Spirit of God is working in my life, sanctifying me, and I'm yielding to that, and we have this relationship good and proper, or if it's just me. Liberty in prayer. When you pray, is it just going through the motions, saying, saying, saying? Or do you actually feel and know the presence of God in your prayer life? Do you know what it means to be illuminated in the Scripture? Do you know what it means to be moved and guided by the Holy Ghost? Do you know what it means to be enabled by Him and helped by Him? These are ways that we can test and ask ourselves this very question. Am I experiencing the doctrine? And are you, my friends, experiencing the doctrine of the indwelling Spirit in sanctifying and making us more like our Savior? Now, verse 4. Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it yet be in vain? You know what he's saying is, listen, you got saved and you suffered. You got kicked out of your houses. You got you got told off, you were preaching the gospel, got roused out of the city. He's saying, listen, did, did all this happen in vain? This is, what, this is what the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthian church, did he not? He said, he said to them this, he, he said to them, if the resurrection is not true, our faith is vain. And why are we suffering day and night? There's no point in this. He's saying a similar thing to the Galatians here and saying, listen, if salvation is not by faith alone and the works of the law is needed and faith is not preeminent enough, how is it then when you believe the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, you suffered at the hands of those that believed the Judaizers, you suffered at the hands of those false teachers and now you're going back to the teaching of the false teachers by which you once suffered at their hands for the doctrine that you believed? Crazy, oh foolish Galatians, who have bewitched you? The same people that persecuted you for your faith in Jesus Christ because you were declaring this joy and peace and power in the Holy Ghost. All of a sudden, now you're, you're going to their belief. What, you want to go back to, to dry, old, cold religion? I tell you, listen, the flesh always wants to go back to dry, cold, old religion. Always, naturally, defers to dry, cold, old religion. Because of the sense in which our minds are not exercised and we are no longer humbled under that kind of religion. But we're stable, comfortable, settled. Not challenged. Now look at the next verse though. So he challenges that and then verse number five. He therefore 
that ministereth to you the Spirit, and worketh miracles among you. Doeth he it by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Now, I don't want to go back to the difficulty that I was mentioning earlier, but just a simple statement here. Many people connect verse number 2 with verse number 5, and that's why it's difficult, because verse number 5 is not a reference to salvation. Um, <clears throat> it's not. And so this is where people struggle with that. But I just want to go on uh, leaving verse 2 behind and just looking at verse number 5. Now he points not only to a past experience when they received the Holy Ghost, but now he points to present experiences of the Holy Ghost. You understand that? The word ministereth to you. is The word ministereth is the word to abundantly supply you with. And he says, he therefore that abundantly supplies you with now the Spirit of God. Does he do this because you're under the law or because you're under grace? Now, here it says, he therefore, I believe it's God. Um, <clears throat> that ministereth through the Spirit is in the present tense, which means he continues to minister, in the, continuing at this present time to bestow, to administer, to supply you with an abundance of measure of the Holy Ghost. Does he do this now for you because you're under the law of Moses? Or is he doing this to you now because you're under grace, you're hearing of faith, you believed on Jesus? Now, <clears throat> I want to make it clear that this passage, I believe very clearly, is referring to not indwelling, but endowment of power or the idea of the filling of the Holy Spirit. And what he's simply saying is, this God that abundantly, lavishly supplies you with these endowments or these infillings of the Holy Ghost and, and the connection with that and worketh miracles among you. Obviously, this was something that was very evident in the early church, in the book of Corinth in particular, and here, and in all the early church. It's simply saying is this, this same God that was pouring out His Spirit upon this congregation that was resulting in manifestation of God's great power in, in miraculous, in miraculous preaching, in miraculous healings, other things like that. He goes, is He doing that because you're a law-abiding uh, mosaic Pharisee, or is he doing this because you're a child of the living God under the new covenant? And obviously the answer is because you're a child of God under the new covenant that this blessing is for those that know God. Now, <clears throat> I can only see the outpouring and infilling here resulting in that miraculous power. And he's saying to them, does this happen to you and continue to happen to you simply on the basis that you're under the law or under grace. And what this teaches us, brethren, is that he's pointing to a definite present experience in the life of the Galatian church, which would undoubtedly prove to them that going the way of the law is not profitable for them. But they ought to stay under that new covenant of grace by the Spirit of God, for there are the blessings of God. Not only saving blessings, not only sanctifying blessings, but also blessings of endowment of power to carry out the work of God and the will of God. And all I can say to you, brethren, is this. Is not what God has provided for us in the Holy Ghost more than enough? And can you say with all sincerity this very morning, my Christianity 
is an experiential Christianity. I know my doctrine, but I experience my doctrine. I know my doctrine, but I feel my doctrine. I know God loves me, but I feel His love. I know God gives power, but I sense His power. Obviously, our sensing of all these things may not be perfect in our comprehension, but what he's simply saying to the Galatians is, I'm appealing to your experience. And so, <clears throat> you say, well, why don't we experience what they experience? Now, that word, miracles, is the same word for power, dunamis, right? And so... So when we think of miracles, we're always thinking something, healing, whatever. It, it, miracles are always supernatural, don't get me wrong. But God's power is always supernatural. Do you understand that? When a man preaches in the power of the Holy Ghost, he's preaching in the power of a supernatural power, not in his own power. It's a miracle. When you witness God's work, it's miracle working. Because it's not natural working, it's supernatural working. Do you understand that? And so perhaps in such a way that would be more comprehensible to us and our experience. He says this. He says, He therefore that abundantly supplies you with the fillings of the Holy Ghost, does he uh, and worketh power among you or in your midst, does he do this because you're under the law or because you've heard the word of faith and responded to it? Now think about that. I ask you this. Do you know the power of God in your life? Can you say that I have a sense of the presence and power of God upon my life, that when I preach the gospel, I know that God is supernaturally enabling me? That's normal Christianity. You say, why isn't it normal for me? Well, I'll tell you why it's not normal for me. <laughs> I'll tell you why it's usually not normal for many of us. It's because we are powerless because we are prayerless the history of the church through the book of acts to this present day testifies that those that have sought the lord in much earnest have been recipients of the power of god and the enabling of god to do the work of god in such a way that can only testify that god is in this place prayerlessness powerlessness it's a very real thing we're not living in days of revival brethren we're living in days of apostasy and that apostasy seeps into the church that spirit of apostasy the earnestness to seek god fervently with fastings and prayer to 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 to, to leave off tables to be given to the ministry of the word and prayer to, to pray with such earnestness for God to show himself strong and manifest his glory amongst his people is almost unheard of today. Even in good Bible-believing churches, this is not practiced. Good Bible-believing churches are often doctrinally orthodox but dead. And there will come life when there will come people that will seek God's face to breathe life back into his church. That his church might be a true display of his glory and power and majesty in a cold and dying world. You say, well, we're in the last days of apostasy. I tell you this, my friend, before every great revival, there was a great apostasy that preceded it. 
You say, well, I only wish that I lived in the days of Jonathan Edwards. Oh, no, you don't. You look at the moral decline in the days of Jonathan Edwards and many of us wouldn't be able to live in that society. You think they get angry at the preachers today? They were throwing dead cats and dogs at George Whitford and John Wesley. Most of us get a bad look and a little bit of a, a swear word and we think, oh no, we're getting persecuted. No, don't get me wrong, we are, to some measure. But those days, there was a harsh rejection of the gospel then. What about under the Queen, uh, Bloody Mary, Queen of Scots, who killed the Christians like never before? We think we're suffering at the hands of, of, of dictators. You look back at those days and see how they suffered at the hands of dictators. If there was ever a time where people would think there was no hope for the gospel, wouldn't it be during the time when Christians were being slain and persecuted day after day? Don't you think that would be a time where we think Christianity is being lost? When they're burning Bibles before your eyes? Now, obviously, Satan's strategies have changed a little bit. And not saying we're not in days of apostasy. But don't be downhearted, my brethren. The same God that has given us this new covenant can also revive his church in the midst of a wicked and perverse day. Yeah, Habakkuk said in the days of the Babylonian captivity, <clears throat> Lord, revive thy work in the midst of these years. Nothing's too hard for the Lord. But our, my challenge to us in closing is this. Will you beg God and seek God that he might afresh work in such a way that will testify that he is working in this way as we saw in this passage of scripture in verse number five.